Hello, and welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and we have a special episode for you today. My guest is Karen Baum-Gordon. Karen has had a successful business career. She graduated from Harvard. She had a long run at McKinsey and & Company, and then she went on to co-found an executive coaching and management consulting firm. But Karen and I are not going to talk about any of that today. What we are going to talk about is a personal journey that she took over the course of a decade, a research rabbit hole she descended down, and a book that came out of the other end of that experience. And we're talking about it in part because this week, on January 27th, is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we wanted to commemorate it with a special episode of History Factory Plugged In. A little bit of background. In 2005, the United Nations General Assembly designated January 27th as the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust, the day upon which every year the world would mark and remember the Holocaust and its victims. You can learn more about it and find information about events at holocaustremembrance.com. The tragic irony of this is I don't think anyone who passed this resolution at the UN back in 2005 saw this coming. The watchdog group, the Anti-Defamation League, reported last year that 2021 was the highest year on record for documented reports of harassment, vandalism, and violence directed against Jews, and it is anticipated that 2022 will be no different. The organization has tracked such incidents since 1979, and what's striking is that historically, the rise of anti-Semitic events typically happens in isolated spikes, such as what occurred in 1981 and 1994. But 2022 will mark an unprecedented six-year upswing. Now, I know I speak for millions, if not billions of people around the world when I share that I never expected in my lifetime to experience this rise in anti-Semitism that we have experienced here in America and around the world in these last six years. My wife is Jewish. My children are Jewish. My kids have experienced anti-Semitism themselves. And when I've wondered if I've been living in a world of naivete, it's been both heartening but also incredibly devastating when I've talked with dear friends, colleagues, and family members who are Jewish, who have shared that they too never imagined that we would find ourselves here. And indeed, as you will hear, Karen Baum-Gordon also did not see this coming. So Karen Baum-Gordon joins us to share a personal experience and a project, a mission really, that culminated after a decade into a book called The Last Letter, A Father's Struggle, A Daughter's Quest, and The Long Shadow of the Holocaust. The book, which was published last year, and I encourage you to pick it up from wherever you buy books or check it out at your local library, is already in its second printing. The last letter was ABC Good Morning America's Buzz Pick. It's been nominated for the American Library Association's Sophie Brody Medal for Outstanding Achievement in Jewish Literature. And the book and Karen have received a lot of media attention over the last year. So here to talk about her experience and a process that didn't begin as a book project, but ended as a beautiful memoir is Karen Baum-Gordon. Karen, welcome to History Factory Plugged In. 
Well, thank you so much for having me, Jason. A pleasure. And congratulations on your book. It's been so well received. And we had the opportunity to talk uh, a little bit uh, before this conversation and just uh, really excited to talk to you today. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, um, let's start with your your journey to 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 write this book didn't didn't start the way they all start <laughs> in that uh, when we initially talked you uh, uh, clarified that you didn't actually originally set out to to write a book. So what did you set out to do and how did the journey ultimately turn into this wonderful book, The Last Letter? So I was really out to solve mysteries. Um, my father, who immigrated to this country at 21 in 1936 from Frankfurt, um, at the age of 86, uh, had attempted to take his life. And if you knew my dad, he was the most extroverted in the world, engaged with life guy. And um, I, he wrote a note late in life that said he was a tortured soul. Um, he had come here, he had become a, a member of the US Army, he became a naturalized citizen, went back to participate in the liberation of Buchenwald, and his parents indeed perished in the Holocaust. But he wrote, I am a tortured soul, attempted to take his life, and went on to live seven great years. After he passed away, I really was compelled to understand why. What was that? What was the tortured soul? Yeah. The other mystery was that he never knew. He knew his parents had perished in the witch ghetto. He learned the date and circumstance of his mother's death, but never learned the exact date and circumstance of his father's death. So I set out to find that as well. So I was on a journey to find out and solve those two mysteries. Um, I, along the way, um, delivered a talk at our synagogue, uh, which was in the form of a letter written to my grandparents who had perished in the ghetto. And I ran into a fellow on our street one day uh, and he said, oh, I, I, I was telling him about it. And he said, I'd really love to read that. So I drop it in his mailbox. A few days later, I run into him. He was a longtime editor at McGraw-Hill. And he said, you know, you have a book inside of you. And I'm like, a book inside of me? I don't think so. I mean, I'm doing some research. I'm writing a few essays. I'm keeping a journal. I'm having these 88 letters translated. But a book? I don't think so. Well, fast forward, it, uh, I continued to write these essays. I would drop them in his mail slot. Um, he would put them in my mail slot with his line edits. Um, and I came to learn that he actually uh, grew up around the corner from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, hmm. His mother and Martin Luther King's mom played uh, bridge together. And he, in fact, helped write some of Martin Luther King's speeches. So he was instrumental in my uh, evolving to write this book. And uh, I feel very fortunate that he crossed my path. So, so you started this journey and you started writing these essays. What was the research and discovery process like? How did you go about 
solving these 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 two mysteries of your your dad and your your grandparents so i in addition to the letters i started with things like uh, I reached out to the Hessian archives. Hesse is the state which Frankfurt uh, resides in. So I reached out to the archives and asked them for anything and everything that were in the files there for my grandfather and for his business. That was a little tough because I would get back these, you know, uh, one page uh, per PDF and I'd have to piece it together and say, oops, where's page 12 and where's page 15? And took a while to get the complete set, but I did. Um, and then I reached out to um, uh, people that I knew might know something. So I reached out to a woman who was an expert on the deportations. And I learned a lot more about the actual day of the deportation of my grandparents. Um, I reached out to somebody who uh, I've known uh, professionally as a, a photojournalist, and I had a couple of photos that were real mysteries, like where were they from? And he mm -hmm. did this analysis of the back of the photo and, you know, got a giant magnifying glass and did all kinds of research to identify those. So I just kept down this path of reaching out to people, uh, doing the research of archives, and um, and lo and behold, I, I pieced together many, many parts. What were some of the most exciting moments? What were some of the big breakthroughs as part of the research and discovery process? Some of the big breakthroughs were, um, one uh, was learning that my grandparents who perished in the witch ghetto, there are graves for them in the Jewish cemetery in Wuch, which I never would have guessed. I would have guessed their bodies would have been cremated. But in fact, I had the good fortune of meeting and traveling back to Wuch with a survivor of the ghetto. And she helped me uncover this. And I worked with the caretaker of the cemetery. Um, and there are actually graves there. Now, my grandparents happened, a low point was that my grandparents died during seven years of which some records are missing but I was able to put up a, a monument in their memory. So that was an incredible um, high point of the research. Um, uh, another high point of the research was learning a lot more about the Ritchie boys. So my father was a Ritchie boy. The Ritchie boys were, um, uh, was a, a name for many of the soldiers who were stationed at Camp Ritchie in Maryland. And mm -hmm. many, many of them were immigrants. Um, and I learned so much about how this group became, they were part of army intelligence and many of them spoke the language. So the training they went through and they would play good cop, bad cop. It was, uh, it was really, really fascinating. Um, and then lastly, I would say one of the most rewarding parts of it was actually walking into the homes uh, where my grandparents and my father and his sister had lived. Um, there was something about the visceral feeling of being in that space, you know, of seeing the staircase that my father, I'm sure, learned to 
with how to climb stairs on that staircase. Uh, I've seen the actual door handles and the banisters. That was incredible. Mm. And if it's not giving too much away, what was there anything from your family's past that still remains a mystery that you still would, would hope to be able to discover or find out? Yes. Um, of course, now there's more and more things that I wish I knew, like um, why did my grandparents allow my father to drop out of high school in 1933 when he was 15, uh, in 1930, sorry, when he was 15. I know education was really important to them. And his sister, two years ahead of him, had graduated from high school. So there's some missing something there. Um, and why did my grandparents, like others in Germany, leave and come back in the 30s? My, my grandmother went to Palestine at one point. She went to Switzerland on vacation. My grandfather traveled for his uh, tailor supply business and he went to Luxembourg and would come back. It's mind blowing to me that in the 30s and in the late 30s, we're talking 1938, mm. they would leave and come back. And uh, it's a huge mystery. Um, I, uh, I wonder about how my father learned so quickly about um, his, his parents passing away in the ghetto. Um, they died in May, my grandfather in February and my grandmother in May of 1942. There's an obituary in a German Jewish newspaper called the Aufbau, still exists today. The obituary is in September of 1942. That to me is remarkable. Mm. How, who, who learned that? Was it my father or another relative? Um, but how did they get the news that quickly? Um, and then lastly, something that is really tough to not know is these 88 letters I have, 87 of them are weekly from November of 36 to June of 38. Then there's a three and a half year gap. And then the last letter, which is typed and not handwritten, is written four days before my grandparents were deported in 1941. So this three and a half years worth of letters, it's a mystery. And I know they existed because my father wrote his autobiography and makes reference to the letters of the 40s. So, where they are, I don't know. And the and the letters that, of course, are, are the, the the foundation of the book. Were these letters that your father already had, or were these letters that you discovered and uncovered as part of the research process? So my father had them. Um, he was visiting us uh, in New York one day. He came downstairs and had under his arm this disintegrating, you know. Uh, green Penaflex folder. And uh, he says, well, today I'm going to the Leo Beck Institute, which is, uh, you know, an institute for German Jewish uh, research, etc. cetera. Uh, I said, yeah, what are you going for? I'm going to donate these letters. And I said, these letters, what are these letters? 
So I look at them. I think I had maybe seen them once before. Um, and I'm looking at these letters. They're written on this onion skin paper in something called Suderling script, which is an old ornate German script. It's beautiful. Um, and he says, yeah, I'm going to donate them. And I said, Dad, these are like the original letters written in your parents' hand. He said, what are you going to do with them? I said, I don't know, but I do know that I don't feel like I or we are ready to just give them up. They can have a copy. So, in fact, um, that's what we did. And we um, a copy of those letters reside at the Leofek Institute. I have the originals each in an archival sleeve, uh, in an archival binder, and, and one day, of course, they will be donated. Yeah. Wow. Well, it, it is. Yeah. So, of course, we've talked about that. I wanted to make sure that they were being uh, maintained in an archivally sound uh, fashion. So we, we've covered that. But um, it, it's, it seems like it's fair to say that you became a researcher and eventually an author over the course of this project. And you mentioned the, uh, uh, the, the mentorship you had. But what previous personal or professional experience prepared you so well for this undertaking? So I would say professionally, professionally, I am a, um, a management consultant and an executive coach. And I would say professionally, I have a tenacity in terms of problem solving. Like I really want to get to the answer. I want to ask the right question and I want to get to the answer. And even in my executive coaching practice, nothing gives me greater satisfaction than working with somebody and sort of cracking the code to help them become better leaders. So that tenacity, that search for the answer is definitely there professionally. And I would say, uh, personally, interestingly enough, I, at a youngish age, got through writer's block. So when I was in high school, I had a teacher that was really tough, an English teacher. She would dock you know, five points for a misplaced modifier. As a consequence, I literally got writer's block. I went to college. I had three 20-page papers due the, first, the same day, the first semester. And I really worked with someone to learn how to, quote, write, meaning how do you get it all out and then, you know, then write. Um, so that that's really, I would say, the, the context and background. Yeah. If you had the opportunity to, to do one thing over, what might it be? Uh, I would have those questions that are unsolved. I would have. I would have asked a lot more questions a lot earlier. And I would say to folks, now is the time because people are not going to be on the planet as long as you want them to be. And um, ask the questions now. Yeah. What What did you learn about yourself as you went through this project over the last decade? So I learned um, two things. Um, one is I learned how to live in the present when I'm spending so much time in the past. And that was a challenge, honestly. Mm. I really had to learn to sort of lift myself out of the letters and the research because um, it could be all consuming. Um, the other piece I learned was when I'm compelled to do something, there's really, there's no stopping me. I would wake up, 
I did some of my best writing in the middle of the night, like from three to six in the morning. And that was an interesting learning for me. I never would have guessed that, but I would wake up and just be like on. Yeah. Well, I'm sure when you, when you have something like this, that's just so all consuming and you're passionate about it, you know, it's like you go to bed and you're like, I, I got to get up and get it out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that just, you know, strikes me about this project and this, you know, really personal um, journey that you were going through and, and learning about yourself and, and your dad and, and your grandparents, all this is happening during a time where it, it feels, certainly from my perspective, but I, I'm sure others might disagree, but it certainly from my perspective feels like the world has rapidly shifted in a, in a direction where there just feels like there's this rise in anti-Semitism that I know my family has experienced and friends and, 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 you know, colleagues have experienced it. And I just wonder what that kind of parallelism must've felt like in terms of, you know, having this focus on this project from, you know, 75 years ago and all of a sudden all of these current events happening what was that experience like yeah for me when i hear or see the anti-semitic sentiments it is it's like palpable it it's here we go again um it's it feels like we're hitting replay when i think about and I write about it in the book, uh, some of the America First um, uh, committee members back in the day and Charles Lindbergh and some of the speeches. And then I hear some of the comments and the rhetoric today. It, it's unbelievable. It's the same. It's really the same. So that's been really hard, um, as well as, frankly, the war in Ukraine. Um, seeing the pictures of those little kids with their noses smushed against the bus windows and these kids being separated from their parents, again, it's that separation of families uh, yet again. And um, it's remarkable, the similarities. And as you were going through this experience, is it right that you became a German citizen? I did. I did. What compelled you to do that? So, you know, a lot of people think it's like, a, we'll show you. You thought you were going to get rid of us. But in fact, I had to think about it long and hard after our two sons, Matthew and Adam, actually expressed a very strong interest in becoming German citizens because, of course, the world would open up, right? They have EU citizenship, they can work, they can live there. Um, so I thought long and hard about it and decided that it was a silver lining to some horrific history. And it was a good thing that could come out of this. And I also believe that my dad would be very much in favor of it. I think he would really support it. So, so it was, it was so it was driven by this feeling of kind of wanting to be full circle with your dad or? Yes, that's a, that's a good way to say it actually. Um, it's almost, it's almost in a mode of, um, yeah, it, it's kind of like the silver lining and, uh, and something good from it all. 
Mm. What do you hope readers will take away from your family's story? I hope they take away that um, my story is, I think, twofold. One is um, that it's really worth uh, finding out and learning more about whomever it is in your background you want to know. You don't have to write a book, but it's incredibly rewarding to put some of the pieces together. The second thing I hope they take is that it's somewhat of a cautionary tale. And back to what we were talking about before, that um, what's occurring now has so many roots in history and reading, um, reading their story really can be a cautionary tale. Um, it's not like there wasn't anti-Semitism um, before the war, but in times of uh, societal stress, um, something that isn't so at the surface can be surfaced. And I think by weaving together my grandparents' very personal story in the context of history, I think I show that. And, um, and I hope people can see it. Yeah. Well, Karen, thank you for, for sharing the story. It's a, it's a beautiful book and um, congratulations. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for the, the conversation. My pleasure. All right, that concludes this episode of History Factory Plugged In. Thank you again to Karen Baum-Gordon. Stay safe out there, and we will be back soon with a new episode of History Factory Plugged In. Be well. I'm Jason Dressel.